Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating some of the finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined as always by my childhood friend Chris Dow, Scrantonicity, and my adulthood friend Minty Booth. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcements! Announcements! We would like to point you in the direction of our social media channels. Please do check out our YouTube page. Go to YouTube, search for Our Three Cents, and you can find all of our amazing video content. We've got stuff on there like streaming content from my playthrough of Sea of Thieves, or Chris trying to beat my Super Mario Maker 2 Super World, or my episodic journey through the original Rayman on the Saturn. We're also on Instagram at O3C Podcast. Please do follow us on there for all of that sort of content. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, we also have a Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Our3Cents. If you head over there, you can have a look at some amazing perks on offer in exchange for some few pennies of pledges. Our way. <laughs> perks such as exclusive full bonus episodes, deleted scenes, custom artwork, access to the exclusive Our3Cents Discord channel, which is a hoot, and other things as well. So, this week we have our 13th favourite video games of all time. Unlucky for some. But will it be for us? I doubt it, because they're absolutely great, I'm sure. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz, where, for the first time since, literally, (laughs) we started, (laughs) it is level. And that's very exciting for everybody who has been cheering on either of you guys... Or Minty in particular. So let's see who's going to pull ahead, or if indeed it will be a rollover. Despite the concerns of Nintendo management, The Legend of Zelda met with success when it was released in 1986. That is not the question, for that is just a piece of trivia. (laughs) I'm I'm glad for it. (laughs) In order to defeat the final boss Ganon, Link had to strike him with what? He's disappeared. No. Was it A, a silver arrow? B, his oh, magic Discord, sword. Piece of shit. C. His ocarina. D. Oh. A magic spell. Oh, I think it's the silver arrow. That is correct. And the point goes to Minty Boo. No. Congratulations. <laughs> why? Why? Why what? Discord cut out of the entire question. I have no idea what you asked. <laughs> Did it? No. Oh, I didn't hear a God. single bit of that. When you get to the recording, you'll just hear me swearing at it. <laughs> Link had to strike him with what? He's disappeared. No. Was it A, a silver no. arrow? B, oh, his magic sword? Piece of shit. C, his ocarina? Oh. D, a magic spell? <laughs> Let me give you the question now and see what happens. Oh. Then I'll decide on that. In order to defeat the final boss Ganon, Link had to, t- had to strike him with what? A, a silver arrow? B, his magic sword? C, his ocarina? D, a magic spell? B. That is incorrect. So the oh. point legitimately goes to Minty oh. still. That was unfortunate timing, but also entirely justified win for Minty. Congratulations. Well. 44 points to Minty, 43 to Chris. My word. Hmm. I'm so upset. So what have we been playing this week? Chris, what have you been playing this week? Well, I I bought a new game. That makes a change, doesn't it? I never spend money on games. Mm. I have a big list in my head of games that I want to buy. And the condensed version of that list essentially is just a line that says all of them. (laughs) But um, the the more detailed list kind of ranks titles by like the platform I want to buy them on, how much you want to pay for them, stuff like that. And, And one game I'd been looking at for a while, but just never seen at the right price point was Yonder, the Cloudcatcher Chronicles. Uh-huh. But because I've been sitting on this this stack of recent CEX credit, oh, yeah. I, I saw it for about £20 and thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go for that. And it's really, really nice. It's it's essentially, it's like a, a mix of Harvest Moon with, with soft exploration, a bit like like a watered-down Breath of the Wild, maybe. It's It's got kind of simple puzzles, a bit like, um, I don't know if you ever played the game Rhyme a couple years ago. But there's a few kind of like little environmental puzzles like that, which are quite nice. It's got crafting and, and resource collection, as you know, almost every other game in the world does at the moment. And and it's all wrapped up in just a really lovely soft art style. 
so the characters are sort of shrunken down stubby little things the the animals in the world are all weird hybrids a bit like viva pinata just with less sweets and tassels <laughs> but what what i've really enjoyed about this game is that it's been lovely how quickly it captured the attention of georgia much like joe biden <laughs> <laughs> way relevant <laughs> but yeah when, when i started she was on the other side of the room doing something else and within 20 minutes she was like i i might want to have a go at this and then <laughs> since then it's been something that we've spent like a bit of time each night just playing half an hour swapping the pad and and just kind of you know spending time between us lovely and it's got such a like a gentle system of progression that it means that you feel like you're achieving something even if your completion percentage isn't always going up yeah yeah, I've I've really liked it. Like, I, I think for both of you, it could be something you'd, you'd really enjoy because it's got elements of, of Animal Crossing. I, th- I think for you, Jonathan, it kind of ticks some of the boxes of what you wanted out of Summer in Mara that you felt that didn't really deliver yeah, on. Yeah, that was my main impression when I was reading reading up on the game after you messaged us about mm. it. It looks, yeah, it looks like it delivers on what I wanted from Summer in Mara, almost, almost exactly. So yeah, stick it on your wish list. See if it comes down to sale because I, I would definitely recommend it for... You know, for one of those games that I've held off picking up for quite a long time, it's been out for a, a couple of years now. Mm. I, I kind of I regret missing out almost because uh, I, I've really, really liked it. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. How about you, Minty? What have you played in this last week? Oh, how have you got on with Xenoblade Chronicles? I've beaten it. I've finished. <gasps> yeah, I finished Xenoblade Chronicles and I know that Chris hasn't played it, so I can't really go into as much depth as perhaps <laughs> uh, I would like. But you can do a spoiler special at some yeah, point. Yes, well, please great ending wow i know right like <laughs> yeah i i too have a backlog of games that i that i want to make a start on not least xenoblade chronicles 2 oh, so yeah. i haven't completed first one as much as i normally would like but with Hyrule warriors age of calamity around the corner yeah. i feel like i need to be more uh, economical with my time so you know i, I can't spend 14 hours um trying to find the last tasty sausage to you know, <laughs> to rebuild a war-torn city. That, that That's time that I could spend playing many of the other games that I've said to myself, I'm going to play this. Well, good. I think it's mad, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with me now, Minty, that Xenoblade Chronicles appeared on our list and neither of us had completed it. And that ending... My goodness, how many places does it take it up the, up your list? <laughs> well, I, I, it would probably put it on my list in the first place. Is it not on your list? No, Xenoblade Chronicles no. X was. Oh, it's just on my list. Man. Well, there we go. There, well, yeah, so hopefully. Exactly. As for myself, I have played uh, a couple of things. I've had a very busy work week, so I have continued playing Pick Pick. My DS now tells me that I've clocked 13 hours on it and I haven't even done a quarter of the puzzles yet. So that's <laughs> that's that's quite comforting. They're, they're, they're big puzzles now. I'm sort of at around about sort of 70, 75-ish on all of them, on all, all three of the different puzzle modes. Nice one. And I mean, they're just wonderful. It's great to sort of reward myself with, you know, a, a puzzle to do after I've done, say, edited five minutes of footage or something and... Uh, and sort of work like that it's been it's just been great and i love it i absolutely love it something i haven't spoken about in a while is animal crossing which i'm still playing quite diligently i think both of you have probably dropped off now on on your animal crossings yeah but i've really really enjoyed the last couple of seasonal events so we had halloween which was lovely and you can grow your own pumpkins and then craft pumpkin based things such as jack-o'-lanterns and uh, a spooky carriage which is like a halloween version of cinderella's pumpkin carriage which is very cool loads of cool stuff and and the actual halloween event was was really good fun as well and it was just lovely it's just so it's just so nice isn't it it's so nice and now we're into november that means the appearance of mushrooms which is lovely so if you've got any tree stumps kicking about every day mushrooms will grow around them or sometimes you'll be very lucky in that you'll get a truffle buried beneath one of them so you can you can dig dig up some some extra rare mushrooms and you can use those in crafting uh, a lovely autumnal set of furniture i'm trying to get all the recipes for those at the moment it's just lovely it's really really nice and i've just had no problem keeping on playing this playing it every day i haven't missed a day 
in the time <laughs> I've had it. It's ridiculous. It, it is really impressive. Like f- for me, I played it intensely mm. up until the point I, I moved house back in the summer. Yeah. For some reason, like I had a few days where I was very busy, obviously getting things organized, moving in. And it just felt like a natural like punctuation point to just have a break. I simply played the game until I could have sex again. Yeah. Um... (laughs) (laughs) But what I was going to say is... um... Because obviously these seasonal things, I, I assume will roll out, roll around yearly. Yeah, I, I can see myself maybe at the start of next year, like after Christmas, starting again, like picking it up again. Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing that you know I've got a bit of a roadmap then of what I have missed out on and, and what I want to spend a bit of time catching up on. Yeah, but that's been really nice. Uh, but I have also managed to play a new game this week because me and my usual Friday night gaming crew, we took the open beta of the new Worms game for a spin, which is called Worms Rumble. Oh. Yeah, and we gave it a go, and we, we had a really, really good time with it. It's So it's entirely different to... Well, not entirely different to the Worms, normal Worms setup, but it is a real-time battleground, sort of battle royale-style game. It, it's it's very much sort of in the in the same vein as, as, obviously, things like Fortnite and apparently, I think, Warzone as well, which uh, one of our friends who was playing with us said it was it was very similar to... But you, you move on a, on a 2D plane and you're sort of traversing the world almost like felt a bit like Smash Brothers in the way that you sort of get around. And these maps are huge. You'll have three types of weapons on you. You'll have your melee weapon, which is your baseball bat. You'll have a gun, which could be any one of any number of guns that you can find all over the map and pick them up and, and or steal off other people. And then grenades, which again, you can get all the different types from standard grenades, cluster grenades, holy hand grenades, banana bombs, all that sort of stuff. And then you try and take out the other teams. And it's really, really good fun. It controls very well. It, it, I, I switched to playing with a control pad rather than on the mouse and keyboard because that made it significantly easier, which was uh, which was really, really nice. Your worms do a really cool thing when you run. They just curl up into a little ball, like a morph ball and roll, and it's really fun. And you can get around really quickly. There's quite a lot to get your head around. There are some tutorials in the game, but I didn't. <laughs> I played one of those and was like, okay, yeah, I'll give this a go now. And then was just like in with uh, in with the rest. But one of the really nice things is you can play in teams. Hmm. Uh, and at the moment, the teams are just up to three people. So uh, so we split into two groups <laughs> to see how we got on. And then you do like a team death match and try and beat the other teams. And I think something that makes it similar to Warzone is that the longer the, the battle goes on, uh, the more areas of the map are sort of flooded with poison gas to sort of keep the keep the match contained and, and sort of speed it up. And yeah, it's, it's really good fun. It's really good fun. You can dress your worm up in loads of funny hats. So that's that as well. It feels like it feels like a freemium game, yeah. but it's not. It's it's going to be ten ninety nine. But I'm tempted to buy it for ten ninety nine because it's really yeah. really good fun. I I really wish that it came out. It's it was coming out on the Switch because that would be a really nice fit for it. I think I think I would play a lot of it if it was. But it's um it's not. It's only coming out on at the moment. It's a PlayStation console exclusive, and then on computer. So yeah, I'll see how I get on. But yeah new direction for worms i mean i'm sure they're not abandoning the idea of traditional worms but why not get involved in the battle royale setup if you can tetris did for fuck's sake <laughs> i think for for team 17 they they have to do something different with worms because as as much as i i love worms armageddon and by extension lots of the other entries because they are the same, the same. game uh, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. there's only so many times you can just tart up the same thing being reasonable like i'd say the last 10 entries in the worms franchise have been the same yeah so you know by the sounds of it they're at least thinking about current trends and and way to kind of ways to to push the formula in a slightly different direction yeah but yeah time will tell whether or not people take to it as much as as they did the original formula i guess so there we go shall we move on to the rankings Let's do it. Starting this week, we have Chris's game. Chris, can you please tell us about your 13th favourite video game of all time? Punching pretend people is fun, isn't it? Yes, it is, Chris. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, whilst I've never been a huge fan of like one-on-one fighting games like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, 
because they require sort of a like a time investment. I just can't give up in order to really understand and enjoy them properly. Uh, I have always loved the simplicity of the side-scrolling brawler or beat-em-up. Yeah. When I was 19 or, or 20, some sometime around that age, having just finished my, my year-long foundation course in art, I decided I didn't want to go immediately to university. And instead, I worked as a morning cleaner at a branch of Weatherspoons in Margate. Ooh. And it was a truly horrific job. Awful. <laughs> like, when I had my interview for the position, the manager looked at my CV, which wasn't anything special because I was, I was still young, but it had, like, my GCSEs and my A-levels and then my art foundation. And, and she asked me really quizzically, just like, why are you applying for this job? <laughs> and, and, and honestly, the only reason was I, I needed some money. And I needed to have evenings free because I was playing a lot of gigs at that time. And and the job paid pretty averagely, but it meant that because it was a morning position, I was free from about 11am every day to do whatever I wanted. Now, the, the downside to that was that I worked pretty much seven mornings a week straight for months on end. And the only days off I would have was when I would have like a couple of drinks in the evening with some friends and then become like emboldened enough to phone in sick in massive inverted commas at like two or three in the morning, letting them know I wouldn't be there at 6am through sort of slurred speech. <laughs> now, I, I, I tell this story mainly because on one occasion in particular, I had gone to a house party with friends. I'd had a fair few drinks. I, I called in sick as, as I did occasionally. I had a few more drinks and then <laughs> I proceeded firstly to push my friend off a trampoline that we were double bouncing on at the full height of our leap because I thought it was really funny. And secondly, uh, became embroiled in an impassioned debate on why Streets of Rage 2 was the best side-scrolling beat-em-up of all time. What are they doing? Wow. And I, I remember like almost violently arguing this really really importantly like this was something that needed to be said we needed to have this conversation and get this out of the way <laughs> almost 15 years on i feel just as strongly about this game my my 13th favorite of all time and i don't even need the rush of alcohol or the thrill of nearly murdering a close friend to say it <laughs> <laughs> like streets of rage 2 is one of the earliest games i remember playing and it was with the the same cousin who introduced me to castle of illusion and double dragon on the master system and later Flashback and Road Rash 2, and then this game on the Mega Drive. And I found it interesting like to think about this. It's weird, the, the snapshots of media you remember from childhood. So I, I vividly remember the, the bum drop attack uh, in Castle of Illusion that let you kill enemies, but also reveal secret chests. I remember the, the gut punch opening of Double Dragon that I talked about in our Valentine's special some months oh, yeah, back. I remember that. <laughs> I remember the the ridiculously cinematic presentation of Flashback um, and how it just looked like nothing else at the time. I remember the comical sequence in Road Rash that sees you kind of thrown off your bike after impact and then having to jog back to your, your downed vehicle. But with Streets of Rage 2, it just seemed to be everything. Like it was a game that at that age, it had such intoxicating power that my memory is just of the game. It's not a particular point. It's just everything about it. In essence, everyone knows what Streets of Rage is. I would imagine that is listening to this at this point. You pick a character, you punch other characters. And that is really the, the crux of it, the long and short. But that simple reductionist approach to describing it doesn't explain why it feels so much better than all other brawlers. To its credit, the recent Streets of Rage 4 came remarkably close to matching the high watermark of the series that I, I feel the second iteration is. But even then, it was modern enough and, and bloated just enough, likely to appeal to you know the audiences we have now, that it lacked a little bit of, of 2's immediacy and accessibility. Streets Race 2 is as good as it is because of a few key things. It has a, a god-tier Mega Drive soundtrack. <laughs> it has an impossibly simple but surprisingly nuanced control scheme. It has properly impactful combat. And it has a good sense of humour. And I think that is what makes this package so strong. In order then, the soundtrack, I think, honestly ranks alongside things like Comic Zone and Sonic 3 and Shinobi 3 and Toe Jam & Earl as being just shining examples of what the Mega Drive could do when it was in the right hands, like the right composers. Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he was good at Joseph it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the machine itself is often compared to the SNES and, and the SNES had a sample-based chip so it meant that it could sound more like real music. And, you know, there, there were lots of detractors that would say the Mega Drive had the inferior sequencer. But whilst the SNES has loads of great soundtracks that I'm sure Minty could tell us all about as, as being the person that, that grew up with one, 
the Mega Drive had far more lows, but for me, much, much higher highs when the composers got it right because it didn't sound like anything else. Yuzo Koshiro is the, is the composer in the Streets of Rage games and, and his work across these games and the Shinobi games especially, they kind of looked at what video game soundtracks were in the early 90s and just threw away the rule book. Like Shinobi is percussion heavy jazz fusion Streets of Rage is sort of like thumping Eurotechno with breakbeats and intense electronic melody. Data Discs are, are like the premier company at the moment, currently pressing vintage game soundtracks to vinyl. And it's just, it's no surprise at all that in their first year, the Streets of Rage games were the most coveted of their releases. Like Streets of Rage 1 and 2 were light years ahead of their peers. And then when a few composers started to make headway with the chip inside the Mega Drive, like towards the end of the console generation, Streets of Rage 3 came out with what might be the most technically impressive 16-bit soundtrack I've ever heard. You know, it takes influence from heavy industrial dance music. It's got tracks that are like thematically resonant with the game's wider story of, of robotic takeover. Like it's it's really insane. Like they really, really went to town with that soundtrack. But yeah, two is 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 fantastic for for its 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 music. Secondly, the the control scheme and the way it feels to play. The controls, there's just three buttons. You know, there's attack, special attack, and jump. And and these days, like when you when you pick up a controller and someone says, "Oh, can I can I have a go at that game?" I I dread handing someone a control <laughs> pad to learn a new game, because the first five minutes is always an explanation of, "Okay, the face buttons do this, uh, the shoulder buttons do that." No, you can't use the D pad for movement because that's your inventory. Yeah, yes, you do have to click in the sticks to run. And <laughs> and when you, when I was a kid, it's like the Mega Drive was perfect because you hand someone a pad, A button does that, B does that, C does that. And even if you forget what button does what, you've got a 33% chance of just falling onto the right <laughs> function by accident. In Streets of Rage 2, this means you can be up and playing in seconds, but it's the use of these kind of simple commands in combination with each other or in combination with directional inputs or, or contextually that makes it such a fun game to learn because yes, you can just punch people and have a great time, but you can also grab enemies and throw enemies and stagger enemies and charge enemies, attack in the air, attack behind you, use weapons, throw weapons, break out of grapples. Like it's a really expansive moveset for an outwardly simple game. Again, coming back to Streets of Rage 4, it was expanded a bit further there. But once more, like something about that title's kind of like modern gaminess where this stuff was kind of more telegraphed in almost like a tutorial style way. It took away from the organic approach that the the original trilogy had where a child could just play the game and enjoy it just hammering the buttons like I did when I was with my cousin but as an adult I can approach the game knowing each battle was about controlling the space and and herding enemies properly and taking them down with considered movement and aggression so I know that it's not just a case of wailing on the b button as much as possible I can punch and stagger I can grab someone chuck it over my shoulder to take down someone who's approaching I can turn I can punch backwards to hit the enemy that's just got back up I can pick up a weapon deal a bit of damage and then chuck it across the stage at one of the tougher sort of enemies that's just spawned in. It's it's such a limited palette when presented as just A, B and C, but in execution, it's really layered and exciting. And it's the the combat itself is is what makes it exciting because every every hit feels really good. And we've had this discussion before about like films and games that it just seems mad to me that certain things today get combat so wrong and, and feel so like weightless because games like this that date back to the early 90s had already codified how to use a combination of good sound design, uh, like having a bit hits done on impact, the kind of Legend of Zelda style, and having these carefully considered frames of animation to make a punch or a kick feel weighty and, and meaningful. The sound effects that accompany straight punches seem to sample like the snap of a belt or a, or a heavy <laughs> slap. The effects that accompany like whacking someone with a pipe captures both the the swipe through the air, the big shroom sort of noise, as well as the crack on impact. And once that's coupled with the exaggerated animation and, and considered knockback and movement, it just feels really, really good to play. The Golden Axe games were, were contemporaries of Streets of Rage, but as much as I enjoy those games too, they, they don't hold a candle to the more refined work in Streets of Rage. The engine powering the two might even be similar but it's the artistic design from from both the audio and visual teams working in conjunction with the coding and internal design itself that makes Streets of Rage 2 stand above. Lastly, something which I I really noticed when returning to the game recently is its sense of humour that I didn't really pick up on as a kid. The first game in the series was very much a vigilante cops fight through the street style narrative with enemies all looking like generic Mad Max style baddies. Uh, and the environment's largely based around just a logical progression from point A to point B across a city. 
But Streets of Rage 2 goes all out to keep the narrative function of the first game, but just to really spice up how far out its enemy and stage design could be. So stage one feels quite vanilla. You've got like an alley, a club, a back street, but a few stages in and you've already fought across a half-finished bridge that overlooks the city, through an amusement park, through an arcade, across a pirate ship, which is <laughs> justified by being a sort of Pirates of the Caribbean Disneyland-style attraction, <laughs> and, th- and then against a, a one-two boss combo of a Geiger-style alien and then a Street Fighter-style copy of Blanca. <laughs> as, as the game progresses, you'll fight across baseball fields, underground wrestling clubs, uh, bobbing industrial cruisers. Uh, other treats include like an old-timey boxer who's a boss with, with comically bizarre sort of body proportions, a stripy leotard and bare feet. You approach an enemy stronghold through what seems like an actual war zone. You go up and down the sort of side-scrolling beat ups bread and butter, that infinite elevator that's in every one of these games. Streets of Rage 3 would kind of double down a bit on, on some of the weird stuff with, with boxing kangaroos and lots of sort of cyborg enemies to complement its story. But I think 2 strikes the right balance for me that fun is front and centre and in the spotlight at all times. So it, it doesn't really worry about making narrative sense because it doesn't have to. Like this, this was the era where the majority of a game's story would be told through the manual, which may or may <laughs> not have been lost or misplaced. And as such, the game doesn't really worry about asking the player's permission as to whether this silly enemy can appear in that silly stage. It just it just plows on because it thinks it's going to be fun. There's so much to enjoy about Streets of Rage 2. Like I haven't mentioned the sprite art. Uh, I haven't mentioned the, the fantastic co-op play, which is how I played it as a kid. I haven't mentioned that it does have a one-on-one versus mode, which I'm sure some people will get a real kick out of. I haven't mentioned the, the scaling difficulty settings either that present a real challenge, but always gives you the, the tools to succeed with a bit of practice. I, I really love this game. And, and as a slurry fresh out of college, Chris once said, it is absolutely the best side-scrolling beat-em-up of all time. <laughs> Superb. Great stuff. The only side-scrolling beat-em-up I've ever played was the... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. Oh, okay, that's that's not too bad a game. No. Oh, and Ninja Gaiden, actually. That's, yeah. That's, that, 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 that's quite a prestigious game from what I've read. Yeah. But yeah, it feels like I've uh, I've missed out on quite a wonderful subgenre listening to you it's, talk about I, I it. I really enjoy it. I really do enjoy it. I mean, Streets of Rage 2 is, is the best entry point, I think, because it it's really immediate. Like I say, it's it's really fun and kind of engaging from from the word go. It's just a shame, like we've we've mentioned on here a few times, the Mega Drive collection on the Switch is dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I can't recommend people play it that way uh, because there is such latency in the controls that it, it doesn't have any of the immediacy I've just talked about, like any of the good stuff that was on the Mega Drive. So if you have, you know, on a PC, you can get it via Steam. If you have other consoles sort of going slightly further back, you can get it on other sort of Mega Drive collections. But yeah, I can't recommend the most recent one. So just just emulate it if you can. It's, it's mm. definitely worth a punt. So, next, we have my game. Are you ready to hear about my 13th favourite video game of all time? I am now. My ears are open. Do you remember many, many months ago when we had the superb fantasy life on our lists in consecutive weeks as our 77th, 76th and 75th favourite games of all time? I do. Yes. Made it statistically the 76th best video game ever made. Like, that means you can't... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's you're, just how it works correct. can't argue with science <laughs> exactly and we don't quite have the same situation for my game this week but it's not far off because this week confirms that the legend of zelda breath of the wild is statistically the 14.6 recurring best game of all time <laughs> wowee <laughs> Oh, so close. We could have really fucked each other over on this one. Exactly. (laughs) I'll never forget the day I got Breath of the Wild. It was the same day I got my Switch, which was the day after the console came out, and I was fucking livid. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't dare go out of my flat in case it was delivered when, when I was out. So the upside is I got two separate deliveries from five guys. So uh, <laughs> 10 guys kept me company in my fury. <laughs> <laughs> but was it worth the wait? Of course it was. I got my beautiful Switch and my beautiful Breath of the Wild special edition. I believe within an hour of me getting my delivery, I'd sent a picture to both of you 
of me playing Zelda on the loo and claiming that this is what the future I dreamt of really was. (laughs) You spoke last week, Chris, about the brilliance of the Switch's near instant startup. It's seamless switching from dock to handheld mode and how it meant that, you know, the modern 30-something gamer gave them a welcoming invite to to play games again. All good things, but not as important as being able to drop a dollop while you play. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish they had the balls to lead their advertising campaign with that. Of course, on Switch launch day, uh, plus one, I played a lot of 1-2 Switch as well, yet to appear on my list. <laughs> Top 10. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Obviously not. Although the tech demo it served as for the Joy-Con and the HD rumble was pretty cool, especially the rolling the ball bearings oh, around calc. inside your Joy-Con. That is genuinely mind-blowing. Even now, I don't know how they do that. That was brilliant. Yeah. But what's left to say about Breath of the Wild that we haven't already covered? Not much. What is worth repeating? These things. I think this is the best made game of all time. It is unbearably well balanced and the way it presents you with the world to explore is second to none. It's funny that there are so many videos on YouTube that are dedicated to exploiting various... I guess sort of glitches found in the game to allow you to do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, I never encountered any of these in my probably 120 hours plus I lovingly poured into the game. For me, it was solid as a rock. And and anything that seemed to behave a bit strangely in the game, I always felt it had a tangible reason for that. Like like Minty said, the, the game starts by giving you all the tools you need to manipulate the world around you, from the magnesis power allowing you to move metal objects around pretty freely, to the stasis power allowing you to twat a bunch of potential energy into an object to be released at a point a few seconds further in time all the power to create pillars of ice out of bodies of still water. And then the game just just lets you loose into a world. We've spoken before about the audacious moves in games in the last couple of episodes, actually, talking about the opening of Rogue Leader and The Witness, but the, the level of confidence shown in this game to set you free in a world after the tutorial section on the Great Plateau is mad. Like, especially in a franchise that's been known for its pretty strict linearity in terms of needing to go to certain dungeons to get certain items to go to certain new places like i I, i'm imminently about to become a father and the thought of say i don't know dropping my daughter at the entrance to alton towers and saying go on have fun do your worst (laughs) fills me with the type of anxiety that, that really puts your bowels in a blender but but that's what nintendo did here Go on, have fun. We know what we've built has everything you need to ensure you have a phenomenal adventure, no matter how you choose to play it. You've both touched on this aspect of the game, and it's the element of the game that really stood out to me when, you know, when I think back on the game. I remember so many games in the past being billed as as this sort of experience. You can do the main quest if you want to, or you can just kick back and chill in the tavern. You can approach this game all guns blazing, or you can go through the whole game stealthily. And I've always felt a bit disappointed in games like those because it's never as free as you think it it will be you'll always encounter something that has to be done a certain way or or, you know something that will occur in the same pattern but everything in breath of the wild from the route you take the weapons you use the food you cook the order you talk to people the priorities you set the dogs you pet (laughs) the puzzles you solve the, the enemies you defeat all of these things can be done seemingly an infinite amount of ways if you want to go through the whole game with just a stick as your weapon, you can do that. If you don't want to faff about with any of the side quests and just head straight to Ganon's castle, you can do that. If you're too imposed by the looming porcine threat of the final boss, then you can turn your attention to that in 200 hours time when you're feeling ready. If you don't want to get involved in the foraging, fishing and cooking side of the game, don't worry about it. If you want to just ignore all the dogs, then fine, you can be a cunt. <laughs> But never has this malleability over your playstyle been more evident to me than in one of the pieces of DLC that came out for the game, known in in the game as the the Trial of the Sword, but uh, known in past Zelda games as the Cruel Dungeon or the Cruel Labyrinth. This this challenge in the first expansion pack presented you with, I think it was 45 rooms that you had to best without much respite. And these grew in challenge the further you got, with you facing more and more enemies and harder and harder obstacles. And this was incredibly tough. And it took me quite a long time to figure out the best approach to beat all these rooms with minimal fuss. And it took me a while to to really appreciate and and accept that I could do these rooms in whichever way suited me best. You know, I was so used to 
games forcing you to do things a certain way oh this flying enemy is here so you better approach this room with your bow and arrow oh there's lots of rocks in this one so better get your bombs out but if you didn't want to do that you didn't have to you could alert one of the mob and lure them off one at a time you could take cover behind a rock and snipe off the ringleader with a finely placed arrow you could throw a bomb into the mix to distract them whilst you picked up one of the enemy's powerful weapons and then threw it at them from a distance and taking cover again what an incredible experience. Given the design of The Trial of the Sword, I think it's safe to say that no two people would play through all 45 floors in the same way. Just incredibly secure and stable game design that genuinely empowers the player in a way that I've never experienced in a game before. We've spoken in passing about the Divine Beasts in your two entries of the game, and they're really superb. Titanic constructions that are awe-inspiring from a distance, terrifying from close up, and, and thrilling from the inside out. Minty mentioned the beauty of the 3D maps for these dungeons, which totally elevated them to a new level. Love them. Love them. <laughs> so good. So, so good. Like Nintendo knew that in order to play through those dungeons and get the most enjoyment out of them and their puzzles, you needed to have a, a, a more concrete grasp of your location than you normally would in a traditional 2D Zelda map. And the way you interact with the beasts themselves via the map system is, is just, again, it's awe-inspiring. And the game does genuinely make up for the lack of real dungeons in the game that a lot of people criticised who obviously hadn't played the game. And this balance came in the form of the 120 shrines that were located, some hidden, some not, all around Hyrule. And it was like Nintendo had designed and created about, I mean, two dozen huge dungeons, split all the rooms into separate locations and scattered them around the land. They, they were brilliant contained puzzles and and to be honest some of the best 3d puzzling and physics-based game design you'll ever find i mean there are whole games that are dedicated to this type of play and it gives the very best of them a real run for its money you know games like portal or manifold garden or recently for me super liminal and this side of breath of the wild is is just a small 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 tiny part of the whole game <laughs> although there was one shrine where I think you needed to be naked on top of a giant mushroom during the blood moon for it to appear, which took me so fucking long to unlock. That wound me up a bit. Although the blood moon is a very cool feature, like a nice bit of legitimate lore to explain a, a pretty solid gameplay device to ensure that there'll always be enemies to fight. It's really clever. Really clever. It is. It's very, very clever. It's um, scary. Yeah, it spooked me right through. And like I said, it means that Enemies don't just reappear for no reason. You don't need to worry about going back through an area you've just been through because you know that they're dead unless you've had the blood moon. And it, it just it helps you keep track of everything that's going on in the world. And it's, it's, yeah, very, very clever. One of the things I love about this game is how it deals with dynamics. It knows when to turn things on and, and when to dial things back. There are so many moments where you can happily just stand still and soak in the atmosphere, the gentle minimalist music tinkling away subtly as you watch the sun set over the Great Lake as day turns to night and one of the dragons appears out of the water, its scales glistening in the starlight. All three of us have mentioned these as incredible moments to witness and, and I would say there's never been anything like it. But just as much as the game knows how to create these quiet, internalised cerebral and soulful moments it, it also knows how to use it to contrast with the heightened moments the game also has in store when you suddenly hear the faint alert of a guardian's laser seeking you out the sheer panic before all hell breaks loose beneath your feet is exhilarating or when you climb the mountain to the goron village and you can barely hear anything over the constant guttural moans of the earth <laughs> beneath your feet sending lava cascading down the slopes around you or when you spy without a doubt the most intimidating Zelda enemy of all time, the centaur beasts known rather comically as... Lionel. <laughs> as Lionels. <laughs> the proud and, and, and kingly as you spy them in the distance. It reminds me of that bit in The Animals of Farthing Woods when you first see the white deer of White Deer Park standing proudly on the mountain. I'm sure many of you feel the same. <laughs> but after you've fought one or two Lionels, their, their silhouette alone will, will make you quiver. Such fearsome fearsome beasts and, and they will annihilate you with one swing if you're not careful but the feeling of power and success you get when defeating one is it's the closest thing a non-soulsborn game has made me feel that is comparable to that sense of victory in dark souls and it's something that's worth saying about the game it's not a walk in the park 
even though you can go and tackle the final boss pretty much right from the Great Plateau and, and you don't get anything more suitable to face the final boss throughout the game that will really dramatically alter your odds when facing up against Ganon. I mean, sure, you'll get some more powerful weapons, but, but they can break. Sure, you can find more heart pieces, but you can still take damage. You can still die. Yeah, you can get the powers of the past champions, but unless you know how to use them, you won't get much benefit out of using them. The only thing that does give you a bit of an upper hand is, is activating the four divine beasts, which will then, I think it cuts half of the final battle out. But but that second half and the third half, <laughs> they'll still knock seven shades of shitty Korok seeds out of you. But, but what the game does is equip you with experience through its wealth of varied quests, adventures, challenges, battles and, and puzzles. So, so when the time comes, you can enter Hyrule Castle with your head held high, knowing you might have a chance of beating this thing. I've always said that I thought the story in Breath of the Wild was was one of the the weaker points in the game, but since playing Sea of Thieves and realising that with some games, the story is what you make it, and, and the adventure I went on through Breath of the Wild was such a phenomenal adventure that I can't deny how much I cared about every element of the game. And, and my journey through the game would be very different to anyone else who played the game. And Chris, you rightly paid homage to the environment as like the protagonist yeah. of the game. It is the canvas for you to paint your adventure on. And it's so varied and extraordinary in its scope and scale that it allows you to do that so freely and epically. It was it was great to get more of the story of the champions fleshed out in the second piece of DLC. And I, I mean, I absolutely cannot wait to see the full story of the Calamity unfold in the new Hyrule Warriors game in a couple of weeks time. It's also worth remembering that the second piece of DLC gave us something we never knew we wanted in a Zelda game. A fucking motorbike. <laughs> yeah. Big old Insane. <laughs> Even though other Zelda games have had more apocalyptic threats and more serious doom-laden stories, this is the first game that made it feel like this world had real history. And that's incredibly compelling. Like, I don't care about its place in the Zelda timeline. We, we've said before how bullshit that is. Although I will repeat the idea that Minty touted once about what if the story of, say, Breath of the Wild 2 ended with you realising that the only way to vanquish whatever evil from the world is, is to flood Hyrule, which would lead directly to the creation of the Great Sea and the Wind Waker. That's a great idea. It's such a good idea, mate. Oh, yeah. And I would, oh, have, yeah. I would have no problem if that's how, you know, this little series of games links together. That would be that would be quite nice. But I can't wait to see what direction they take with Breath of the Wild 2. Like I said, when you know I was talking about Majora's Mask, I really hope they steer it in a really unexpected direction because I mean they've checked the box of what they did with this game. If you want more of that experience, play through the game again, tackle it on master mode if you're a sadist. But I'm sure they'll do something unexpected and equally brilliant with whatever they follow this masterpiece with. So, yeah, to finish, you'll probably be thinking. How can there still be three Zelda games that I enjoy more than this? <laughs> As of right now, I don't know. Man, oh man. It's so good. <laughs> what what you said about, you know, confronting Ganon, the thing, the thing you gain is your own experience. <laughs> it's a really moving game. That, that's yeah, huge. It is. That's, that's big. That's like a really big concept. And that, that links back to what we said about The Witness last week. Like, by the end of it, that what you've learned is just what you've learned. You don't have any new powers. It's not yeah. like, oh, suddenly I can I can conjure something from the air which helps me solve these puzzles. It's just, you you know more. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. So, last but not least, and for the second week in a row, bring us home, Minty Booth. I'm not a man who likes being rushed. Any questions? <laughs> 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 I never played this game as a child because I saw what I thought was the incredibly stringent time limit to beat the game. I thought, well, that doesn't sound enjoyable at all. That just sounds like an anxiety-inducing nightmare of a game. <laughs> and while I did end up playing it and loving it many years later, I look back and I realised that I was pretty much spot on with my initial appraisal. <laughs> Not for such shallow reasons as a time constraint, but for a masterfully realised oppressive atmosphere, an incredibly strange reworking of familiar things, 
a hero's mournful journey to heal sorrows and regrets, and a whacking great moon about to smash into the earth. <laughs> I don't know what else I can say about Majora's Marks that Jonathan already did a few weeks ago, but here we go. <laughs> it's essentially an apocryphal entry into a series that tells the same story every few years, albeit wonderfully each time. Instead of the classic uh, cyclical struggle between the hero and the spirit of the great evil, we see Link just trying to get his shit back from a mugger. <laughs> a skull kid possessed by the malevolent power of Majora's mask ambushes Link and steals his ocarina and his horse. <laughs> Unless you try and find him, you also do a few errands about the town to literally pass the time, and to stop Majora from destroying Termina by crushing it under a moon with a face. And once you do get your ocarina back, you can use its power to rewind time back to the dawn of the first day, the first of three that you have to avert disaster. The first time that you use it and get transported back, you see that you're stripped of all your consumable items. You think, oh, how, can, how can I beat this game if I don't have enough time to do everything in one go? And then have to spend precious hours at the start of each cycle getting money, bombs, arrows and all stuff like that. You'll say to yourself, but it's okay. You keep the more important stuff, like masks, equipment, the remains of the four beasts that you need to vanquish. That initial feeling of helplessness gradually fades as you get to grips with the geography of Termina. You can shave off a few minutes here and there as you learn the best way to accumulate consumables or figure out ways to bypass them altogether. You never quite shake the feeling of sheer oppression, but the knowledge you gain from constantly resetting time straightens your back and strengthens your arm and gives you the power to overcome. But looking at what came before this game, how do you create a sequel to what is regarded as one of the best games of all time? How do you manage the expectations of the, what was it, 7 million people that bought a copy of Ocarina of Time? Well, you do something completely different. Ocarina of Time 2 would have been disastrous and completely unnecessary. We got closure at the end of that game. There's no part two that needs to happen. Over the years, Nintendo's built up a reputation for being innovative, almost to the point of gimmicky, and using the already existing character models and game mechanics to weave and warp something that is at once familiar and electrifyingly new was something we hadn't really seen done too many times. As you wander around Termini, you'll see people you recognise from Ocarina of Time. Instead of just being a person in a town to make it seem busier, they're, they're reinvigorated with story and purpose. The couple that dances in Hyrule Town now run a fun little minigame. Talon traded in the pitchfork for the apron as he moves from the ranch to the clock town milk bar. Malon is still a child that lives on the ranch, but instead of just singing, she's now a full-blown Area 51 truther and ropes you into hunting aliens that keep stealing her cows. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> it's one of the more chilling parts of the game. If you visit her on day three, after you didn't help her get rid of the aliens the night before, instead of being a plucky and assertive little thing, she's dazed and maudlin as if she's been lobotomized it's Christ, yeah. Ooh, not not a fan of it <laughs> not a fan it really emphasizes the point that your actions have consequences or in this case your lack of actions the three-day cycle means that everything runs on a very short cycle which means nintendo could uh, could stuff so many different side quests into the game and also give each side quest a tangible effect on the world it it, it really has to be experienced firsthand to be appreciated but one of my favorite parts of the game is Another thread that runs through the entirety of your playthrough is the theme of uh, healing. You'll come across people who are so entrenched in grief, filled with regret and under terrible curses. And with the mystical power of the Song of Healing that you learn from the Happy Mask salesman, Link can quell those negative feelings. You can free the spirits of fallen heroes and add their power to his own through the masks of transformation they leave behind. The game is less about defeating evil, I think, and more to do with performing... Small acts of kindness to heal a broken world. You absolutely need to get Nino Cuny. That is the entire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you may as well have just described the entire point of that game. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> it's a story that's poignant. It's understated, and it's really quite beautiful. Jonathan alluded to one of the more involving side quests that features two lovers torn apart by Majora's dark magic. Again, I'm not going to spoil what happens in that quest. But I hope to whet your appetite, dear listener who hasn't played it yet, by saying that I loved that side quest so much uh, that I have a tattoo of it. You do indeed. 
Wow. And of course, the best thing about this game is watching somebody else who's really good at it play it through to completion. The current world record for beating Majora's Mask 100% is, I think, 4 hours and 17 minutes, and it only resets the three-day cycle three times. So do yourself a favour and find one on YouTube. For a four-and-something-hour playthrough, it's so packed with incredibly tight tricks and glitches, and not a second is wasted. So once you've played through the game, once you've experienced it for yourself, experience that sometimes nightmarish but always dreamy brilliance, I really encourage you to watch somebody like uh, Margin Phil play through it in an afternoon and gain another facet of appreciation for just how well designed this game is, both story-wise and gameplay-wise. Number 13, Majora's Mask. Lovely. I really want to play it, and I, I feel I have to beat Ocarina of Time first. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you don't, obviously you don't need, we don't need to do anything. <laughs> such, such is life, isn't it? <laughs> Just... <laughs> yeah, but I think you'll get more appreciation out of Majora's Mask if you finish Ocarina of Time. Yeah, it's just that the way that the, the two of you have described it, it is like painfully up my alley <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, being a very subversive entry in this series. And I, I, yeah. I really I, I want to get to it. So hopefully, eventually, I will. Don't just want, do. <laughs> so there we have it. Another three games, not quite an eclectic trilogy. Although we did start with... Streets of Bloody Rage 2. And then we had The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Before finally... The Legend of Zelda... The Majora's of the Mask. (laughs) (laughs) If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media, tag some people in it who you think might enjoy listening to it, and you can reach out to us on our social media channels to engage with us, facebook.com slash our3cents, chat to us on there, talk to us about the games that you're playing, what you think of these games, ask us questions, or give us some discussion points that you might like to feature in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. At Chaz underscore Hodges. Bang, bang, bang. And it's me, your friend, at Clement underscore Boo. Please do also check out our Patreon page if you fancy getting a bit more out of us. If you've enjoyed this and you want more, you can do that. Just in exchange for some money. Patreon.com slash our three cents. And please do join us next week for our 12th favourite video games of all time oh my goodness only a dozen left oh that'd be good and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor come on guys we're gonna be late for class oh darn not on our first day don't worry i pressurized all of our bike tires to optimal psi for speed wow So we should be able to average 9.6 miles per hour, which should get us to class on time. We We love love Podford Podford University University for teaching us us these skills. skills. Podford University, iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Andrew from Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and we are proud to be the latest addition to the Greenlit Podcast Network. If you're a superhero fan, our show will put your knowledge to the test. Did you know Tim Burton almost made a Batman musical? Or how Superman almost had a love story with his own cousin? That's disgusting. But it's true. We cover it all, mixing clips with commentaries, sketches, and impersonations. So tune in to Superhero Stuff You Should Know, available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and everywhere you get your podcasts.